Welcome to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to The Female Red Zone. This is Mary Beth Kismaski. Today I'm interviewing Amelia Demenko. Amelia is the president and CEO of the Women's Business Development Center, and she's also retired executive vice president of BMO Harris. And she was there for 30 years, a 30-year career with P&L responsibility, 80% of her career. Uh, she's managed budgets in excess of $200 million with revenues multiple in multiples greater. Her responsibility included leadership and management for 600 commercial banking employees. Today, she is serving women at the Women's Business Development Center. And I am thrilled to find out more about the Women's Business Development Center. Well, I know something about it, but being able to share this with our listeners as well. So welcome to the Female Red Zone, Amelia. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, it is my pleasure. So I know a little bit about the Women's Business Development Center because my firm, Red Zone Marketing, is a certified female-owned business, and we did that through your organization. So tell us a little bit about what the WBDC does and uh, just for our listeners so we can know all about it. So Women's Business Development Center is also a 30-year-old organization that has served about 75,000 entrepreneurs over that period of time. We are an economic development organization, which means we're in the business of creating jobs. And we do that through helping entrepreneurs, targeting women business owners, build capacity, access networks, access contracts, access capital so they can grow their business and create jobs for our economy. Well, that's wonderful and obviously so needed. Now, I know that uh, amongst a lot of the accomplishments and things that you've done, you started two WBDC micro loan programs with a pool of nearly a million dollars in loans. That sounds amazing, but talk about some of those sort of initiatives that's happened uh, that, that you've been, you know, been able to initiate at the WBDC. So we serve approximately 3,400 business owners a year. Half of them are startup and emerging businesses. The other half are established businesses. And what we, what we do to support those businesses is very different because they're in different phases of their life cycle. So for larger established businesses, we uh, certify them. We are part of the Women's Business Enterprise National Council. We're one of 14 entities throughout the United States that certify women business owners as 51% owned, managed, and controlled by a woman, which allows them to pursue public and private sector contracts. We do a lot of programming around that. What do I mean by that? We do a lot of procurement events. We do a lot of corporate panels. We work with the corporations and the women business owners to help them connect and do business with each other. We do problem solving. And we provide access to particular decision makers that help them begin a conversation that could allow them to grow their company. On the startup and emerging side, we, that's where the microloan program is. Not that we can't lend uh, to larger companies, but their capital needs are much greater, so we could be a participant, but we wouldn't be the only uh, lender to that larger company. So um, what happened, we dramatically expanded the program during the worst of the recession because the traditional sources of capital uh, were not as available. So through a generous grant from the city of Chicago as well as the state of Illinois, we were able to dramatically 
expand that program and to provide capital for growth to business owners, both men and women, who um, were shut out from traditional sources. In addition, for startup and emerging businesses, we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one counseling. We have a full curriculum. We uh, have a lot of workshops. So there are a lot of resources we provide to startup and emerging businesses also. So for somebody uh, that is starting up, there are so many things that they have to do. So let's say that you're in corporate America and you go, you know what, I want to start up a business. So you might have money, you might, have, you, you might even have some capital with which to start your business. But what are some of the things that somebody could gain from an organization like yours in terms of the counseling and the help? Because sometimes it's not just the money either, right? Well, no, it's not just the money. The most important thing that a business owner can do is to do a lot of research on the services or products they are going to their their idea, you know, the idea that they have, to see if it is a point of differentiation, to make sure there is a market for it. Because they could have all the money in the world and all the capital in the world, but if what they are, if the service or product they will be producing if there isn't a point of differentiation for it, and if there isn't, uh, you know, a, a market for it, they have just thrown away their money. So what we do is we and the other business owners, the other entrepreneurs and that they will meet, will encourage them to do their homework. In addition to that, we have them. Most of these entrepreneurs are have great ideas, great ideas. But they haven't gone to business school. They might not have business degrees, and that's why they're so, that could be the reason why they're so creative. I don't know. What we do is we help them with their business plan. We make sure that they do their homework from how are they going to produce, who are they going to target, how, what are they going to do if they win a contract, how are they going to make sure that their client is satisfied, and where should they be devoting their efforts? Because if I could teach a business owner only one thing, I would teach them what creates value in a company and what destroys value in a company so that they can invest their time because they will always, always, always be limited by time and money. So where they spend their time, where they, if they have employees, where their employees spend their time, is the most critical factor in creating value for themselves. And if they create value for themselves, they'll be able to uh, uh, grow their business and do more hiring. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, absolutely. What about for established businesses? I, I know that I just recently went into your center and sat with a few of the people who were just phenomenal in terms of, you know, we do a lot of business, but we don't do necessarily a lot of business uh, on the government side, and we don't do necessarily a lot of business as a woman-owned business. And so how can we take a look at this? And they were so helpful. So what about for established businesses like myself? What should we be using your organization for? So I'm going to talk about value creation again, but the how you what you would do as an established business, and so the topic you were discussing with my colleagues here at the center what they were talking to you about was revenue diver diversification. Yes. A diversified revenue stream creates value. 
So instead of just going after a certain type of client, um, you might want to say, well, where else? Because you can expand your business in a variety of ways. You can expand it by changing geography. You can expand it by changing uh, diversifying revenues more. You can change it by building incremental products. But the what they were talking to you about is how do you have greater diversification in your in your revenue stream and where you'll really if you were let's assume if you were selling your business if you don't have sufficient diversification in your revenue stream if you don't have someone to take over your business if you are uh, if you've invested in yesterday's technology and not tomorrow's all those things will impact who's interested in your business and how much they're willing to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Great great advice and the, and the uh the diversity in revenue stream. That's exactly that's exactly right and and it is um a lot of value that uh that I received and I haven't even done um anything to take action on it. Well, I've done a few things, but I mean, I ha we haven't like seen the results of this yet, but I can see how this value creation in what you're talking about. Now, a question for you back to your career. So you spent a long career in in the banking world. And I, I work in financial services, and we see a lot of men in financial services. I'm assuming that banking is similar to that. And when you started off many years ago, there maybe wasn't a lot of women around. But talk about that. Was that, was that something you thought about? Was that something that you were, um, you found to be an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, when I was working my way through school, I was always in financial services, and uh, I was in investment banking, not commercial banking, and I learned a few things during my internship. So internships are important. The one thing I learned is that I wanted to be on the revenue side of the business. And the second thing I learned is I wanted to be in a business that was more relationship-driven versus transaction-driven. And I had strong math skills, and I was a business major, and I was going to be getting my MBA. So I thought, well, where can I and, – and this was, at the time, uh, women were just entering in a bigger way the business world. So it was a, a window had opened and I, I wanted to go through that window. The problem that they had back then, some of them they still have today, they are, they're doing a much, much better job in hiring and identifying high uh, potential talent uh, uh, in, in, with women and with minorities. The issue is um, sponsoring them and keeping them so that they uh, uh, reach uh, leadership positions in a more accelerated way. Did you find that, you know, because you were in leadership, did you find that you had an accelerated path? I was blessed. I had sponsors along the way. And I'm thinking of three sponsors in particular. And if I hadn't had those sponsors who believed in me, and they were, they at the time, they were men. But they were men with daughters and they got to know me when I was doing projects for them and when I was doing those projects and I worked with a lot of smart people over those 30 years a lot of smart people like and uh, wonderful wonderful people and but those sponsors 
realized how hard I was working. Um, I was just as smart. I don't wasn't smarter. I was just as smart, and um, but I, I worked really, really hard, and I I took what I did very personally and very seriously, and I think I think that's what they saw in me, and that's why um, they made sure that I was noticed along the way. Well, that's one of the things. There's a lot of research on sponsorships and mentorships, and the mentoring is is different than the, than the sponsoring. So you mentioned the word sponsorship. Can you talk about the difference between the two? Because your organization does some mentoring, if you will, but the sponsorship is something that's different that happens in corporations. The uh, uh, mentor mentors are wonderful, um, hard to find, uh, but usually it's someone that can be within or outside of your organization. And they see the world through your eyes. And they advise you based on their experience and the world that you present. What's wonderful about a sponsor is they work within your company. They're affiliated with your the company that you're in. Uh, they're working with you along the way. So not only are you reporting to, you know, you're telling them what's going on, but they're seeing it themselves. They have an opportunity. They know the organization. They know what's important to the organization. They know you firsthand. I think it's very, very difficult for anyone to advance without a sponsor, to quickly advance within a company without a sponsor. And anyone that I know that's ever worked their way to an executive level um, has always had sponsors along the way. Yes, and I heard a woman talking, um, an executive at a large financial firm, she was talking about how she had sponsors, but she would actually try to cultivate those sponsors. So for instance, if she was not in the boardroom, she wanted to make sure that somebody knew her story that was in that boardroom. If there was going to be decisions made about her, she wanted to have somebody on her side that was going to be in that room. Did you find that you cultivated sponsorships? For me, I wasn't, at the time, I really wasn't sophisticated enough to know that. I mean, women today are much more sophisticated because we've been in the workforce long enough where we know what the rules are and how to get things done. But for me, I didn't know what the rules were. I was just fortunate enough to have these sponsors that looked out for me, but yes, Women should look for sponsors at the highest level and they should work at, they should, they, they shouldn't make it social though. They should look for, I mean, they can make it social, but they really should look for opportunities where they can showcase their capabilities to those sponsors because they might like you and they might think you're terrific, but they can really speak for you if they've seen you in action. So it's more than just a personal relationship, I think, for them to really serve as advocates for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's it's great advice. So in your career, um, maybe at the, at the WBDC or maybe at BMO Harris, what's the biggest success that you've had so far that, that you really um, felt changed your career maybe in some way? Well, I'm going to talk about uh, two successes because my ability to come over to the Women's Business Development Center 
um, my relationship started with it, with the Women's Business Development Center, seven years before I came over, and it was through BMO Harris. So that contributed. I don't think I'd be here today at the center if it hadn't been for BMO Harris. But I'm going to talk about uh, just, uh, you know, how did I become, I, when I was 39 years old, I became a senior vice president. And the reason I think that happened is, in addition to having sponsors that could speak for me, are, were some decisions I made early. And I already talked about one of them, which is, I wanted to be on the revenue generating side and I wanted to be with clients. Companies, for profit or nonprofit, should stay focused on their clients. And the people that are closest to their clients are the people that are going to get the greatest attention. So I was known for my client relationship skills. Clients trusted me. Clients confided in me. Clients uh, expanded their relationships because I was the key person on their account. I worked with my colleagues. You know, I was team oriented. I worked with, I brought various people um, in the bank together to serve those clients. I think those behaviors and success with those behaviors led to my becoming a senior vice president. It was uh, what the bank how the bank wanted to serve its clients. I was um, effective with clients. One of the things that we did is provided access to capital, both bank loans as well as the placement of capital. And I had had a lot of success in that area. Um, the other contributing factor uh, to my becoming a senior vice president, and then I'll talk a little bit about becoming an executive vice president, is I spent time thinking about how things got done within the culture I was in. You know, who were the critical decision makers? Whose trust? Who did I have to build trust with to deliver for the bank's clients? What did I have to know? Um, that would, um, before I entered a room where a decision was going to be made, so that um, I would be trusted. I would demonstrate that I did my homework, that I was the subject matter expert on whatever I was charged to do. So I think being on the client side, winning the trust of our clients, which led to building revenues, understanding how decisions were made, and making sure that I was prepared uh, whenever a critical decision was made, that, that individuals within the company, as well as our clients, trusted me. Um, I think all those factors contributed to my uh, eventually becoming the head of our middle market group, asset-based lending, and I had all of our, at the time, uh, all the overloans uh, and all the treasury management services that our uh, bank holdings had would come through me. Um, the next um, success was, you know, becoming an executive vice president and being put on the management committee of the bank. And I think I attribute that success to surrounding myself with very talented individuals who worked really, really hard, and who also, who I trusted, and who were 
who really knew their job. And that allowed me to take a step back with their insight and input and think, what is the next step for the bank? You know, and, and I, a point in my career that led to the EVP promotion was a white paper that I wrote to the bank about how we might structure a component of the bank to better serve our clients and to build greater operating efficiency uh, within the company. But all that was possible because of the talent that, you know, the people that were part of the team I was part of. So utilizing their strengths and, you know, listening to what they had to say and, and asking questions resulted in our delivering to the bank a solution which I was asked to implement. And with that uh, authority came an executive vice president title. Well, that's wonderful. And I, I think that it's, <laughs> we always have to hire people that are as smart or smarter than us to be around us. Um, part of it is being smart enough to know that we've got to hire people that are, you know, that have talents maybe that we don't have and being able to surround us, surround ourselves with people that are really, really talented. And it sounds like you did that. So that's, that's wonderful. On the flip side of that, if you think about, well, you know, in, in our careers, everything's not a success. And so has there been a moment where something didn't happen the way you wanted it to? And how did that impact you? And how, how did you learn from that? So something that went wrong, perhaps? Well, um, I my greatest learning came from my failures, not from my successes. Right. And, uh, and there were a number of them. There <laughs> we were a number them. of them. I, I, I would... Uh, summarize them in this way. When I failed, I did a Donald Trump. And what I mean by that is I focused on everything that was wrong. And I wasn't as respectful of the knowledge and the experiences of those around me. My, it's not that the solution that I delivered wasn't a good solution, but I wasn't going to be able to implement given where the, and that's true here at the center, given where we were at that time. So you can have a perfect solution, but if you can't, if you can't deliver on that solution, uh, you know, I, I remember when I became an executive vice president, the CEO at the time said to me something that I will never forget. He said, Amelia, I know you know what needs to get done. The issue is, can you get people there? And I didn't appreciate it at that moment as much as I do today because up to that point, I had a pretty good team and we were all rowing in the same direction. But as your responsibilities expand, there are a lot of other players, not all with the same agenda. And trying to figure out how you work with all those that are decision makers that might have, you know, that might not just want to go along with it. It's really, uh, I have failed when I haven't, when I've rushed to what I believed was a solution. And, I, and it's not that I was wrong. It's just that I couldn't get people there. So I needed to, to think a little bit more about what were the experiences experiences and what how did the people around me 
the other decision makers? How did they feel? And what did it mean for them? And how can I make them part of the solution instead of talking about them like they were part of the problem? So I, you know, when I was younger, I, I made that mistake more. I made that mistake more. And sometimes I do now if I go too fast. So I, I need to be mindful of that. The other failure that I'd like to share with you is whenever there's a new leader, you've got to really understand that new leader. You've got to understand, it's not that you don't understand their background because you could read it, but you have to understand how they make decisions, what's important to them. You've got to understand their agenda. If you don't have a thorough understanding, you could be, uh, you could be perceived as not working with them. And whenever there's you know, a, a new leader, a new board, a new superior, really understanding them is critical to being, for, to contribute, to, you know, contributing to the company and helping yourself in your career. Well, right. I mean, I've, I've heard, you know, you're talking about this issue of bringing others with you. I mean, they've got to, they've got to come with you. You might have the greatest idea and I heard uh, or read about John Chambers from Cisco and other uh, CEOs as well. They say, well, we walk in the room, we know what the answer is. But instead of just saying what the answer is, we've got to wait till others come to the conclusion that that's the right answer. And you've got to give time for the conversations and for people to to um, feel like they're empowered as part of the solution. It's not something that the CEO just came in and threw at us. Um, we, we decided this is a good idea. Meanwhile, he knew it was a good idea at the beginning, but that's not how you get people with you. And that's a whole understanding of management and leadership that you can be smart and you can have great ideas, but sounds like that's something that you learned early on in your career. Well, I wish I had learned it early on. I, 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 get, I would consider my failing... I, I mean, I did it with the team I was working with. It's just that you need to do it with your superiors, too. You know, like yeah. you, you need to really understand what's important to them before you can deliver your solution to them. So there, I wish I could do a, a do-over, knowing what I know today. <laughs> yes, I think there's a lot of things we might go back and, and do a, a do-over on if, if we knew. But the learning experience, I mean, you know, how do you get to that point? You, you almost have to go through some of those situations to learn some of these things. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Amelia, it has been wonderful speaking with you. How, how can people uh, find out more about the Women's Business Development Center? Please go to our website at wbbc.org and you'll get an overview of what the center provides. You'll get a listing of all of our events. Um, you can call the center at 312-853-3477 and ask for me or any of our counselors and we would be more than happy to spend time with you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking your time today to uh, come on the Female Red Zone and share some of your great ideas and experience with our listeners. Mary Beth, thank you for everything that you do. Um, thank you for identifying all leaders, in particular women leaders, and thank you for your entrepreneurship and contributing to our economy. Well, you are welcome. Thank you. And from the Female Red Zone, this is Mary Beth Kosmeski. 
Thanks for listening to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.